A king's shilling or a queen's shilling is a term referring to a coin given to soldiers, uh, to naval men from the 16th, 17th, 18th century, uh, even into the 19th century in Britain. This was a token that was given to them when they went to sign up for service because they wouldn't receive their full payment up front, but they were given this king's shilling or in some cases the queen's shilling if it was uh, under Elizabeth or another monarch who was a queen. They were given this shilling as an expression of the king or the queen's full intent to pay out all of their dues when the war is over, when the battle is won, when all is said and done and complete, the king's shilling or the queen's shilling is supposed to represent all of both the good faith as well as the full resources and treasury of the king or queen to be able to pay out to her or his soldiers. Of course, that's no longer the practice in Britain today, although the term is still used frequently to speak about something of a deposit or something of a down payment or something of earnest money, as we might say in our culture, something of a guarantee of both the intent and the resources to be able to deliver on something that's promised. Well, today we want to speak about a text or look at a text that speaks about A sort of a down payment, sort of an earnest payment of sorts in the relationship of the resurrection. A king's shilling, we might say, paid out in terms of a resurrection, a token, a representation that's been given to us to indicate the full intent and ability of God to raise back to bodily life, every person who's ever died. That token, that representation, of course, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And for any who are are willing to doubt or question God's intention or God's ability to raise up every person who's ever died, anybody who's willing to question that, simply needs to look at the resurrection of Christ for an undeniable, an undeniable rebuttal and a physical representation of God's intent and His plan for the end of the world. Now really all this is Paul's point as we come to verses 20 through 28 of 1 Corinthians 15 today. You remember we've reached this chapter after extensive study of this book over the last couple of years And now arriving at this most extensive celebration and explanation of the resurrection that you'll find anywhere in Scripture, maybe anywhere in any published material. Paul is beginning, uh, or began, I should say, this chapter with several arguments about the detriment and the dangers of trying to deny the concept or the idea of a resurrection. There have been people who maybe might have some notion of a resurrected Christ, but have dismissed readily and quickly the idea of any sort of future resurrection for mankind. They simply think of our future or think of our salvation as some sort of spiritual or non-material 
existence. And Paul has laid out for us essentially a line of argument that works contrary to that in every way. Basically telling us in the first 19 verses, if you deny the future resurrection of humanity, then you deny the resurrection of Christ. Because if you deny the future resurrection of humanity, you proclaim the victory of death. And if death is still victorious, that means that its primary source and cause, which is sin, is still victorious. And if sin is still victorious, it means that Christ himself was defeated on the cross. And so to deny the resurrection of future humanity, to enthrone death in that way, is to dethrone Christ and to deny not only his resurrection, but to deny his whole victory over sin. And so the whole point of Paul's argument up to this point is that those two realities are inseparable. The resurrection of Christ is inseparable from our own resurrection in the days to come. The victory of the cross, the defeat of death for all of humanity, uh, this is, is, is inseparable because Christ himself was fully man, has already defeated death, And in that sense has served as both the representative and the forerunner of all who would ever believe in him and be raised bodily from the grave one day. Now Paul wants to build on that. He could end his argument there and it would still be one of the most profound expositions of the resurrection that you ever found. But he doesn't stop there. He moves on, he expounds and expands this argument in verses 20 through 28, unfolding for us the plan of God through the resurrection of Christ. After challenging us with the consequences of denying the resurrection, he now wants to further challenge us to understand that the resurrection of Jesus Christ points to a design by God for all of humanity and really for all of time. All of those things are uniquely and majestically encapsulated in these few verses before us this morning. He wants to unfold this all for us so that we can understand that there's been a divine down payment on a future hope, a future kingdom, a future reality for us found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, as he spells this out, he's going to give us really two parts to this plan or two parts to this hope, we would even say. First of all, in verses 20 through 23, he wants us to understand the resurrection of Jesus Christ has secured the hope of our own future resurrection. I'll just begin by reading the entirety of the passage for us so we can frame it up in our minds. He says in verse 20, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be, enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. 
But when he says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he has accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. That is that 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 God may be all in all. Now, there is just a lot in those few verses. Paul spells out for us here the the, the plan of God encapsulated in these few verses for the rest of history and the rest of the world. The whole rest of creation spelled out for us in, in, in detail here the way God wants to unfold it. He begins here in verse 20 through 23, first of all, with the resurrection of Christ and how that secures our own hope of a future resurrection. And simply stated, the bodily, physical resurrection of Christ guarantees that every one of us who are in Christ will one day experience a bodily and physical resurrection for all eternity. That just as Christ, at this very moment, sitting at the right hand of God, sits on His throne in a bodily, physically resurrected body, so too we, throughout all eternity, will spend our days, our years, all of our infinite time in that way. That's what Paul means in verse 20 when he says that Christ is a a sort of first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. That's a concept that comes out of the Old Testament. If you know anything about Levitical law, you know that this was demanded by God. That when the Jews would harvest their crops, they were supposed to bring a sheath, uh, uh, some representation from the first buds of their crop. They were supposed to bring something that they would present to God as a guarantee, as a promise of what was to come but also as an expression of hope and trust that God Himself was bringing more. And this was not to be done at the end of the harvest. They weren't to wait until everything had come in and then to divide out or to divvy up the various tithes that the Lord uh, demanded of them, one of them going to the temple for the support of the temple and all of its procedures, one of them going to the priest for the support of the priest and all their families, and then one of them... Uh, 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 distributed to the poor for the support of all the poor in the land. They weren't to wait until the end and then to distribute all these tithes. They were to bring at the very first buds of their crop a first fruits offering. And this is what Paul's drawing on here whenever he says for us that Christ is a sort of a first fruits of a future harvest of resurrection. A harvest of resurrection that's going to be full and robust and complete and is guaranteed and is is assured for us by the deposit that God has already made. In other words, if you need any proof that there's going to be a day of resurrection, any proof that you, if you are in Christ, will experience just such a resurrection, just look at Christ. It's all the proof that you need. Jesus himself taught his apostles this. He says in John 14, Yet a little while the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, he says, you will live also. In other words, Jesus was already teaching his disciples there's a correspondence that's going to take place 
between what I experience and what you will experience. In the same way that Jesus Christ was raised in a physical, material, touchable, seeable body, in that same way you and I are going to be raised in resurrected bodies. That's what he taught. That's what we're to understand. Jesus' victory over death, his victory over the grave, his victory over sin, his victory over all that was evidenced by his resurrection, but equally his promise that we too will not ultimately be defeated by death has all been guaranteed by this down payment. And so we know there's a whole harvest of resurrections that the Lord will one day accomplish by all of those who are now, as Paul says, asleep or even one day will be asleep. That's the term he uses in verse 20. It frequently refers to those who passed away. Referring primarily, by the way, to their bodies. The scripture always speaks about their bodies being asleep, not their souls, not their spirits. The Bible doesn't teach what is sometimes called soul sleep. This, this idea that whenever you die, you go into some sort of unconscious state where you're not aware of what's going on, that you simply wake up in consciousness one day in the presence of God in your glorified bodies, but in the intervening time, you are unconscious, unaware, uh, uncognizant of anything else. Now, the scripture teaches, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Or as he says in the Philippian letter, I'm desirous, he says, to depart and to go to be with Christ, but to remain further is more profitable for you. In other words, Paul says, look, I know that for me to die at this moment, you would continue on as the world and history continues to roll on, but I spiritually would be in the presence of Christ. So in other words, the Bible gives ample evidence that when we die, we experience something of fellowship with Christ in our spirits. But that's not the end. That's not the final goal of salvation. That's not the total picture. That is, at best a temporary state, a less than perfect uh, state that is awaiting our full resurrected bodies, in other words, our full salvation. The time when God will save not only our souls, but our bodies as well from corruption. So the believer who, who is in Christ has the guarantee of that. Even when they sleep, they've already received the first fruits of this resurrection. And very simply, what determines whether or not when you die, you have such a hope? What is it that, that really ought to give you that kind of confidence? Well, very simply, it's your relationship to Jesus Christ. Death is the common experience of us all, right? But the resurrection to life will not be the experience of all. In fact, Paul spelled this out in verse 21 and 22. He begins to make this comparison. You'll see he says, As by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of death. And then he restates it in verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Look, when you look into the Scripture... The Bible defines basically two 
lines, two hereditary lines, we might say, when it comes to the end of the earth and the end of the age. There is, first of all, all of those who are in Adam. And if you're here today or if you have ever lived or breathed, you are in that category to begin with. Because the scripture teaches that God created the world, male and female, He created them with two human beings, and then out of those people has come all of humanity so that every human being who's ever lived on the face of the earth all share together in the same genetic and hereditary heritage. They all come from the same line, which is Adam. And as a consequence of that, the Scripture says we all inherit death. That is what's been passed down to us by the corruption and by the fall associated with Adam. But there's a second line that has begun, the line of Christ. And this is what he says here, that those who are in Christ will be made alive. This is the key word in verse 22, in. If you are in Adam, you die. But if you're in Christ, you'll be made alive. And whereas in the first category, every person born in this world is, is uh, qualifying as being subject to death because they qualify as being a descendant of Adam, not everyone is a descendant of Christ. Not everyone is in Christ. In fact, the scripture says only those who are believing, only those who have yielded their life to Christ. Only those who, as the scripture says, have been born through him. Only they are going to be the ones who are subject to this resurrection to life. All in Adam die. All in Christ we've made alive. And there is only those two options. This is a By the way, not suggesting that if you are not in Christ, you'll never be resurrected. You just won't be resurrected to life. You'll be resurrected, the scripture says, but you'll be resurrected to judgment. Daniel 12 verse 2 says, Many of those who, who are asleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame, and everlasting contempt. In other words, God's design for creation for every person who's ever been born in the world is that they will be resurrected in a physical body. The difference is that those who are in Christ will be resurrected to a body that will enjoy the bliss of God's fellowship forever. And those who are outside of Christ will be resurrected to suffer the punishment of their sins and their disbelief on God for all eternity in that physical body. A body which, by the way, also doesn't decay. As Scripture says, the fire is not, uh, the, the fire is not quenched, the worm doesn't die. That is the description of hell. In like manner, neither will your body in hell ever waste away a lifetime an eternity of suffering under the weight of your sin but paul says that's only those who are outside of christ those who are in christ 
have received the promise, the guarantee, the down payment, the earnest that they'll be raised again to life. Now Paul's quick to add in verse 23 that the resurrection he's talking about is coming in successive stages. You'll notice that in verse 23 when he speaks about each in his own order. Now Paul just hints at it here just simply by the fact that that the resurrection which is to take place in the end has already begun. It's already begun because the very first of those resurrections, Jesus Christ, has already taken place. But the resurrection at the end of the age will unfold for us in a series of successive resurrections. Paul talks about Christ and then he talks about those who are who are resurrected at his coming. And then he talks about, in verse 24, the end which comes after that. But we understand, not just from this passage, but from other passages of Scripture, that this this general description of the resurrection at the end is even itself broken into stages. It's broken up into parts. There are a number of places that indicate the different resurrections that are awaiting us for example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 speaks about those who are raised at Christ's parousia, at His coming. 1 Thessalonians 4.15 says, This we declare to you by the word from the Lord, that we who are alive and are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So he's clearly talking about a a, a resurrection and a meeting of the Lord, not at his return to the earth, but a meeting of the Lord in the air. And he says this is going to be the, 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 the fate, this is going to be the the experience of every person who's in Christ, whether they've died or whether they're alive at the return of Christ, those who are dead will be resurrected in their new bodies. Those who are alive will be instantaneously changed into their glorified bodies. And all of them at that moment will put on eternal bodies. This resurrection applying to all of those who've died Presumably in the Lord from the beginning of the church until the Lord's return. But then there's another stage. That's not the final picture. Because immediately the church being resurrected, there immediately follows, we're told in Daniel and in the book of Revelation, a time of tribulation. A seven-year ordeal of unimaginable horror. Many, we're told during that time will indeed repent and place their faith in Christ and yet be killed and be martyred. As a matter of fact, we're told that during that period of time in Revelation 12 and 13, all of the prophecies in the Old Testament that spoke about the ultimate belief of Israel will be fulfilled. For example, in Zechariah, when it says they will look on him who they pierced and then they will mourn for him. All of those passages that talk about the belief that it will eventually come one day to Israel will finally be fulfilled. And in wholesale fashion, Israel will believe along with many, many others. And yet many of them will be martyred. And at the time of the tribulation, 
all those at that point who've placed their faith in Christ will be raised up to reign with Christ during a millennium. That is to say, a thousand-year kingdom. Now, I want to just show you this for yourselves. If you have your Bibles, flip with me over to Revelation chapter 20. And we can see not just this kingdom spoken about, but these specific resurrections and who they refer to as Revelation 20 unfolds. You'll notice in the first three verses, he says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now, you can stop right there. Just a a footnote on that. There are a number of people who have tried to take this passage and suggest that this is all sort of uh, a spiritual figurative description of what took place on the cross. And we're supposed to believe then that what took place on the cross is, is that Satan was bound for a figurative 1,000 years and that now we are living in this time when Satan is bound. Well, I don't know what Pollyanna world that these theologians are living in, But the one I live in has a very real threat of Satan. In fact, Peter himself tells us that even in this age, Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion. He's anything but a chained up and locked away individual. He is currently working his plan to undermine the gospel, the church, and Christ in every way during this age. So what John's talking about here isn't a reference to our current time. He's talking about another time, a time in the future when Satan will be bound, when, as Isaiah 11 says, righteousness then covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. So we have clearly in our mind now this future period of time that's a reference to this this time when Satan is bound for a thousand years. Now I want you to notice in verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. We don't have time to get into that, but let me just summarize that for you. That's you and me. That's all of those believers who have already met Christ in the air at the tribulation and have now returned with Him, as 1 Corinthians 6 says, to judge the world. He goes on. Also... I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This now is a reference to all of those during this tribulation time who placed their faith in Christ. So you see here now already this resurrection being broken up into different periods of time. But he's not done. You go on reading. The rest of the dead did not come to life until, af- until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. 
Now you're scratching your head and you're thinking, how can that be the first resurrection? He said it doesn't happen until the end of the thousand years. So you've got some who are resurrected when Christ comes before the parousia, when he, when he comes at the parousia before the tribulation. You've got some who are resurrected at the beginning of this millennial kingdom. And then you've got some who are resurrected at the end. And then John says, they're all the first resurrection. Well, what he's talking about there is the paradigm of Daniel 12.2. Because Daniel just speaks about all of this stuff under two categories. First, those who are resurrected to life. Second, those who are resurrected to corruption. And so what John is saying here is that it doesn't matter if it was at the, it doesn't matter if it was at a rapture of the church. It doesn't matter if it was at the beginning of a millennium. It doesn't matter if it's at the end of a millennium. All of those people are all categorized under a single resurrection called the first resurrection. But we're not done. You keep reading. He says uh, in verse uh, 6, Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. But when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they march up over the broad plain of the earth and surround the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. See, now we've arrived at the second resurrection. Now we've arrived at a different kind of resurrection. It's not a resurrection to life. It's a resurrection to judgment. The resurrection to punishment. All the dead standing before what's called the great white throne. That's why we sometimes just simply refer to this as the great white throne judgment. That judgment which comes at the end of the millennial kingdom when everyone who is simply in Adam but have never been in Christ are raised in physical bodies. To face the judgment of God and to suffer for all eternity in the bodies God's raised for them. So you have to understand, back over in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul is using a singular resurrection, it doesn't mean that this resurrection all takes place at one time any more than John's first resurrection suggests that he's talking about a single event. He's simply talking about all of those resurrections which fall under the category of believers in Christ. And what he's telling us is that we've been given the down payment. We've been given the guarantee that no matter when we fall in that category, no matter what 
period of time we live on the face of the earth, we have the guarantee that God's going to unfold and accomplish His plan according to His design. And it will assuredly happen because we have the first fruits, because we have the earnest that's already been given. But Paul's not done. If you go back to 1 Corinthians 15, he's not done because this whole, this whole concept of the resurrection, it has more to do than simply your personal salvation and your individual bliss or the individual bliss of any person who's ever lived. It has to do really with the ultimate glory of God and His plan that He has enacted and decreed for all of creation. And so He tells us, beginning in verse 24 and moving through verse 28, not only does the resurrection secure our own hope of future resurrection, but Paul begins to explain how it will subdue the enemies of God's kingdom. And that's the second point of this whole plan that He unfolds for us. This resurrection of Christ is pointing to and guaranteeing God's plan to subdue all of the enemies of His creation and His kingdom. Now, this is very specific language that Paul uses in verse 24. Then comes the end. Again, he uses a a word here in Greek that simply refers to the next thing in sequence. The next thing in sequence After Christ's resurrection, after the first resurrection, then in the next sequence comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Very specific language referring to a future event, a future time, a future reign, a future kingdom. You say, well, how can you be so confident about that? How do you know this is all future? Why why do you suggest that this isn't maybe talking about right now? Then maybe he did all that at the cross. And maybe he's already claimed this victory. And he's already delivered all this up. Well, there are a number of reasons why we understand this to all be pointing to a future. First of all, because everything that Paul's saying here is being said against the backdrop of what we would call creation theology. All of this stuff is being said against the, 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 the background of a restored and renewed creation. Paul's already hinted at that in verses 21 and 22 when he began to draw a contrast between Adam and Jesus. When he says there was, a, uh, there was a, uh, an event, uh, a consequence that came from, from Adam, and now there's a consequence that's come from Christ, and he will, in fact... Carry that all the way through the chapter with many allusions, as we'll see in the coming weeks, to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. But I want you to notice, even down in verse 49, he still is maintaining this parallel between the original creation and the work of Christ in the resurrection. He says, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of of the man of heaven. In other words, he's bringing up what we might call image of God theology or just broader 
We might just simply say creation theology. The theology that was laid out in the opening chapters of Genesis. So we know that just simply by that backdrop, whatever kingdom he's talking about here has some relationship to the material created world that we're told about in Genesis 1 and 2. All those who want to sweep the language that Paul uses here all up under some sort of metaphorical or in the language of some commentators, cosmic realities. They would tell us that these are just cosmic realities, not realities that we see here on the earth or in this realm of creation. They're they're realities that we have to accept, they would say, but they will never really be visible until this world passes away and we all are existing forever in eternity. Everything Paul says here would point to the fact that he has very clearly in mind the creation. The creation. We know that secondly because he makes an explicit appeal to one of the primary creation psalms from the Old Testament, which of course is Psalm 8. You'll notice in verses 25, 26, and 27, Paul mashes together two references, two quotations, one from Psalm 110 and one from Psalm 8. And specifically, Psalm 8, uh, which John David um, Uh, taught from just a few weeks ago in this pulpit, specifically gives praise to God for His plan to make mankind vice-regent over His creation. His plan to make mankind vice-regent over His creation, over every animal, over every plant, over everything. And Psalm 8 celebrates that. We're created in God's image, we're told, In Scripture, which implies that God, by design, wants us to reflect His rule and His reign over the earth. That is what the concept of the image of God is all about. We are ambassadors and representatives of Him on the face of the earth. And Paul's drawing attention to that by referencing here this creation psalm. And again, pointing us back to the fact that the resurrection has something to do with the establishment, or we might say the reestablishment of God's design and creation. See, so many people think that God created the world, He created it good. Genesis 1.31 says, when all was created, God declared it all good. But then something terrible happened. After God created the world, after He created man, after He gave him this mandate to rule over the earth in, in fashion as His representative, sin entered the world and the whole thing was corrupted. And so we're sometimes told to believe that God jettisoned the original design and accepted some sort of plan B where all of the world would be left over to corruption and God would simply settle for redeeming the spiritual souls of those who exist in it. Well, listen, I want to tell you, if that's your idea of God's plan for the world, you have a faulty understanding of Scripture and a low view of God. 
If you think that God is one who's prone to accept a plan B or to accept defeat from Satan, then you have a low view of God. God doesn't accept defeat and he is never defeated. He always works out his plan and his plans have been established before the foundations of creation. And so what we're told in Scripture is that while Satan has worked his work to corrupt the world, God is still at work to to fulfill everything that he wants creation to be, but now has pinned it all on the work of his Son, Jesus Christ, to work that out on our behalf and, and with us on the earth in a renewed creation. That's what this is all about. That's what this is all pointing to. As a matter of fact, it's interesting. Paul uses these two um, psalms together. It's not the only place in Scripture you find them. If you go over to Hebrews chapter 1, you'll see that the writer of Hebrews also used these two very psalms to talk about the Messiah. He says in chapter 1, verse 13, To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? That's a reference to Psalm 110. You may recognize the terms, the same ones that Paul used in 1 Corinthians 15. This is an image of an ancient ruler who would always set his throne so high so that everyone in the room was intended to be below the level of his feet as an indication of his sovereignty. So he's using this image and he's saying that God has a design for the Messiah that that he would sit at God's right hand until that time when all of his enemies are at his feet. He goes on to say that none of the angels have ever experienced this. And he carries that forward into chapter 2. Look at verse 5. Not, uh, he says, Now it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It's been testified somewhere, and here comes your quote from Psalm 8, What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower, a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. Put everything in subjection under his feet. Again, he's making it clear. We're talking about the world to come, not the present world. We're talking about a kingdom to come, not the present realities. As a matter of fact, look what he says in the rest of verse 8. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. In other words, all of this plan that God has inaugurated with the resurrection, all of this plan that He has promised through the Psalms, all of this restoration that He has decreed before the foundation of the world isn't a present reality. Even with the work of the cross completed, even with the resurrection of Christ, even with His ascension and back seated at the right hand of God on the throne of the universe, there is still yet something to be accomplished in a future kingdom. So this is the same concept that Paul's bringing together for us here in 1 Corinthians 15 when he's referencing the exact two same psalms to talk about what's going to take place in the end. After the sequence, 
First of all, of Christ's resurrection. Second of all, of the first resurrection, all of ours. And then after that, he says, then comes this time when he begins to bring all, he says in verse 25, uh, verse 24, excuse me, destroying every rule and every authority and every power. That, by the way, is a third quotation coming from Daniel chapter 7, who uses these same terms in reference to the Messiah's kingdom as well. Now, if you're studying Daniel and you come across these terms, the rule and the authority and the power, and if you're reading the book of Daniel, it's unmistakable what he's talking about. Because Daniel has made it clear throughout his book that these are references to various pagan empires who set themselves up through the course of history against God's people and against his righteousness. They all set themselves up in various fashion, the Roman kingdom, the Persian kingdom, other kingdoms. They all set themselves up only finally to be crushed by God. So when Daniel's referring to these, it's clear what Daniel refers to. It's very clear what first century Jews understood that to be. They all understood that to be earthly kingdoms. And so there's every reason in the context of Daniel, in the context of what Paul's saying here, to understand that's exactly what he's talking about. It's not as though sin, it's not as though death, it's not as though those those spiritual realities are outside of the realm. This isn't a question of whether he's talking about defeating sin and death or he's talking about defeating material kingdoms on the face of the earth. It's both and. Because the sin that still dominates the world finds its expression so often through the kingdoms and the systems and the ideologies of this world that we're battling every day. So all that to say that this is all a reference to a coming kingdom that is representative of a restored creation that has been, that has been indicated and inaugurated by a restored human body in Jesus Christ. By the way, one more clue that this isn't simply a reference to the universal and eternal and spiritual reign of Jesus Christ. And that's the fact that it has an end. That's what he says. He must reign, verse 25, until he's accomplished all these things. I want to tell you, the reign of Christ spiritually and eternally and heavenly has no end. It has no end. It has never ended. And there has never been a time when Christ was not reigning over the universe because there's never been a time where God has ever given over His sovereignty, which is essential to His character. He has always and will always be sovereign over all the universe. But what Paul's talking about here isn't that universal and spiritual and, and heavenly reign of Christ, what he's talking about is the reign of Christ on the earth. The one referred to in Revelation 20, that thousand-year kingdom that's going to come and, and isn't here yet 
and will come to completion one day. A kingdom that will begin at the return of Christ and will last until the very end. When Paul says here, he delivers over all of these things to God the Father, who is to be all in all. This is how Paul lays out this full picture of restoration. Full picture of how the world's going to be renewed. Full picture of how God is going to claim victory. A full picture of how what he mandated for Adam and Eve and what has been completely lost because of our own failure will be regained by the supremacy and victory of Christ and will finally be fulfilled to the glory of God and the shame of Satan. This is the plan. And it's unfolding itself, he told us, already. The down payment has already come. The first fruits have already been seen. The resurrection of Christ is the guarantee that all that stuff's going to happen one day. He goes on to unfold this. He says, God has put all things in subjection under his feet. That's the quotation from Psalm 8. That's the reference to the fact that God has decreed this. He's the one who, by authority, put everything in creation under the feet of man. And Jesus Christ, being now fully man, takes up the role of man to fulfill that. And so he says, it's plain that he has accepted, he, he is accepted, who put all things in subjection under his feet. You say, why is it plain? It's plain because if you read Genesis, you know he's talking about creation. You know he's not talking about all of the universe and everything. He's talking about creation. So this is why it's plain. It's plain that he is accepted. He's not talking about God being in subjection. He's talking about creation being in subjection. And so verse 28 says, When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Let me just clarify this for you. He's not suggesting here that in any way Christ is inferior to God, that in some way he is in a, a second-class role or a second-class being to God. Or he's not even saying to us that Christ is dependent on God for his existence or for his righteousness or even for his rule. What he's saying to us here is that in the creation order. That Jesus Christ is going to fulfill what man was supposed to. He's going to demonstrate after thousands of years of failure. That the life that is blessed. And that the pathway to blessing in the world. Is to live in complete subjection to God. He's going to be what you and I failed to be. He's going to be what the world has failed to be. He's going to lead us as we reign together with Him to fully realize everything God ever designed for creation to God's glory and honor and blessing. 
And he's going to do it all in subjection to him. And he's going to, he's going to subject the entire world to himself. He's going to, as Isaiah 11 says, rule the world with the rod of iron. And he's going to reign over the world with wisdom and a spirit of gentleness and a spirit of peace. Those wars that have characterized all of mankind for all of history are going to go away as people take the instruments of warfare and pound them into instruments of productivity. And the world is going to explode with vitality and productivity as spoken about all throughout the Old Testament. And it's all going to be a direct result of the oversight and management and rule and reign of Christ. And consequently, it will be one of the most glorious days of praise and honor to His wisdom and His name and His kingdom that you'll ever know. As Isaiah says... Righteousness is going to cover the earth as waters cover the sea. All of God's plans that have all been promised are all going to be fulfilled. His wisdom, His veracity, His power are going to be on physical display. And then He is going to take all of that and He's going to yield it up under God so that in the end, The whole reason God created the world will be set right. That God may be all in all. That the name of God would be unquestioned in His wisdom, in His glory, in His majesty. I want to tell you, you don't have to wait for the end to taste some of that. You don't have to Wait around for the resurrection to realize some of that blessing. Even before Christ comes and establishes that kingdom, the word is still out that the only way that you're ever going to find blessing and peace and the only way you're ever going to really find purpose in this life is to live it the way God designed it. And He designed all the world. He designed you. He designed your work. He designed your family. He designed everything you do to be lived for His glory. And to live outside of that purpose and to do anything other than what Christ will one day demonstrate for us, which is to take everything that you are, everything that you have, everything that you do, and to yield it up in complete submission to God. For you to do anything else is to continue the rebellion and the corruption of this world. And continue it to the detriment of your own life. So our challenge to you today. Follow the Savior. Follow the Savior. He will come and he will put on physical, visible display one day. What God designed this world to be. But he calls you right now to that. He calls you into fellowship with him. He calls you into submission to Him. He calls you into a life of blessedness under Him. Living in subjection to Him and finding all the bliss that God has designed for those who know Him. More importantly, He calls you into Himself so that you can have the down payment and the guarantee that when you die, You won't be resurrected to judgment. You'll be resurrected to life. Life with Him in His kingdom. Life eternal 
with him in heaven in glorified bodies, serving the Lord and finding the blessing from it. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with prayer. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, we don't have an altar call here, but we have invitations. And our challenge to you is to realize that God has brought you here, whether by friend or family or just by us, some other circumstance. God's brought you here to hear a message calling you out of a life of sin and rebellion into himself. So our challenge to you today is that you wouldn't leave without responding, that you've heard from God today, from his word, that you would believe, that you would repent, that you would no longer be just someone in Adam and subject to death, that you'd be someone in Christ and destined for eternal life. Father, we're grateful this morning. We pray that those that you are drawing, those that you are calling, would indeed believe. We pray that they would believe and repent even today, Lord, that they would know you, that they would live to your glory, that they would fulfill everything you've designed for them to be in this life and that you would prepare them for the world to come. And Lord, we can't help but think about that with all of its glory and majesty without yearning in our own hearts and praying with the biblical writers. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Come quickly, Lord, as we long for you and as we long for your kingdom to see your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.